be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should be put to silent, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the reading of God's word. I'm just going to pray with Jonathan before he... Oh, let me dismiss the herd to the looses. I'm sorry. Four years old to second grade. Now's your time to go on back with Erica and whoever's helping Erica. All right. Join me in prayer, would you? Lord, thank you for this time just to come and hear the work that you have created in my brother Jonathan, that you are working and crafting in him this message for us to receive this morning and that you would, uh, as Austin and I both have lifted up and prayed, that you would just clear our hearts that from any distractions, that we would see this as you see it and that you would help us to understand and have our full and undivided hope in you and you alone. Lord, we just thank you and ask that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do is we turn our attention here to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're, we're going to see that Peter's going to direct our attention to something incredibly, incredibly practical. And over these next couple of weeks, what we're going to see is that in this practicality that Peter is going to just come to us at the very, very, very simple level. We stated last week this, that the first section of Peter's letter was very high on theology, and, and you, when you compared the practicality of what he was saying, it was very low. And then when we started chapter 2, verse 11, what we got was this, that he switched gears, and now, now that he has said what he has said, and now that he has given us a theology, what he's going to do is he's going to come to us with some very, very practical outworkings of how the gospel is supposed to be, to be played out in our lives. So, so this is what I love about, I mean, don't you just love when something gets very, very practical, right? Whether it's in your undergrad studies, whether it's in Sunday school, whether it's just you talking with, with your wife or with some friends, it's good to have theory and it's good to have understanding. It's incredible to have doctrine. We are to know these things, but some of the most beautiful times when I was in seminary and some of the most beautiful times as my undergrad is when a, when a professor would come at that level giving us something teaching us something, a great theory, a great doctrine, a great truth, but then he just made those couple of, couple of sentences, those couple of observations where it moved that thought from the realm of theory down into the realm of application, right down to that realm of where it just became extremely practical. It gave that truth some handles. And so there was something just really beautiful about gospel practicality. When, when we see the gospel and understand the doctrine, the truths of the gospel, but then when Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, comes to us and then shows us now, now that we've laid out a, a theory, an understanding, a doctrine of what the gospel is and how it has given us an identity and how it drives us toward mission, here's how I see it playing out. Peter's going to not leave us to guess as to what gospel mission ought to look like in our lives. There's something beautiful and dangerous about gospel mission. The practicality of, of gospel mission coming to us is that it reaches right into our lives. We don't just learn about the gospel and just have fat heads full of the gospel. But the gospel in its practical nature drives us forward on mission. But that's also the, the dangerous thing about gospel and its practicality. Because when the gospel comes to us, the very thing that it makes it beautiful, the fact that it reaches right into our life, it, it comes to us and it realigns us and it saves us, makes the practical nature of the gospel dangerous because it comes to us and it's constantly from the day of our salvation until the day we die or the day Christ comes back, it's constantly realigning us. It's constantly correcting us. It's constantly sanctifying us, growing us, shaping us, molding us into the image of Jesus. And for Peter, what he's going to do here is he's going to turn to some admittedly 
hard things as we look at today's section of Scripture and the next two weeks' sections of Scripture. This section of Scripture, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, what we looked at last week, going all the way up to chapter 3, verse 12, is going to be Peter saying, listen, here's how I see the practical nature, the the thing of, of the gospel that draws us to just live out Jesus Christ in the day and day flow, and he's going to couch it in the term of relationships. He's going to show us that the gospel isn't just for salvation, but the gospel is to invade these spheres of relationships that we have. And when you see today, what he's going to do is he's going to couch this idea of relationships and how the gospel comes to us in relationships, and he's going to run it through the grid of submission. He's going to call us over and over again, we are to be people because we are God's people, because we are a people who are chosen, royal, holy, a people possessed, people with a gospel identity. There is a right way that we are to live out this gospel in the realm of relationships, and he he covers all of these ideas with this one key idea that we're going to read in chapter 2, verse 13. And it's this idea that we are to be subject. We are to submit ourselves to the authorities that we find in these realms. So, and so that's admittedly hard. Like we, we feel the tension of that, right? Because today he's going to talk about this civil authority, government, governing authority. One of the ways that we relate in this sphere of relationships is this. We as Christians with a gospel identity are to submit, to be subject to every human institution. Then next week, we're going to turn to this idea that we're going to see in chapter 2, verse 18. Because we are servants, because we are servants of God, and we, we interact in this relational sphere called work, our vocation, that we are to come to that area not bearing a void of the gospel, but we're to come to that area of relationship with bearing an impact of the gospel. We are to be servants who are to be subject to our masters. We're supposed to be workers who are to be subject to our bosses with all respect, not only to the good bosses who are good and gentle, but also to those bosses who are, who are unjust to us. That, that's hard. You get to chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to say the same thing. Something admittedly hard. Wives, you are to be subject to your own husbands. That just grates on us. That's so countercultural to what the world says ought to be done. How, how relationships between a husband and wife are to be lived out. But Peter does not give us room for that. He, he carries that out to husbands. Husbands, likewise, you are to be submissive by living with your wives in an understanding way. Then he's going to say, finally, all of us are to be submissive one to another as we Christians live out in unity. See, the, the beauty of gospel practicality is that comes to us and the gospel is constantly stepping on our toes. It's constantly stepping on our toes. The gospel comes to us to save us, and we are okay with this, but when the gospel comes to us to change us, we often put up defenses. It's, it's, it's not too hard for us to imagine people or even seasons in our own life where, where the sanctification process of the gospel has come to us, and we, we applaud the beauty of the gospel as it came to us to save us. But that moment where the gospel starts to correct us and align us, as we grow more and more like Jesus, what we often do is just... we. We step back, we, we try to peel back, we put on steel-toe boots because we, we feel that tension of what the gospel calls us to do and whether we like it or don't like it, what we also do is shirk from the responsibility of pressing into the gospel and allowing it to have its way in us, molding us to be more and more like Jesus. I was talking to Tom Cheshire this week and he, he gave me this great quote by a guy named G.K. Chesterton, English writer, author, theologian. He said this, The Christian ideal, or what we could say is the the gospel, the the gospel practicality, the, the practical nature of the way the gospel comes to us, has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. See, most people love the book of 1 Peter. When you read chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 10, I mean, people applaud the book of First Peter. I mean, there is just some gospel truth there about who we are in Jesus Christ, about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and we, we go hog wild for it. But the moment we turn the corner and go, what? Now I'm supposed to be subject to that guy that I didn't vote for and I didn't like? Now I'm supposed to be subject to that boss that is constantly coming down upon me? 
I as, a, I as a, a wife am supposed to submit to this man, my husband? Me as a husband, I'm supposed to come to my wife and, and look, look how she operates, look how she thinks. I'm supposed to understand her, not domineer over her. And we want to skip these parts because we just feel the friction there. We just feel, feel the rub of what is, what is going on with the gospel. But Peter comes to us without a, without a hitch, without, without any, any explanation, without, without any apology of, well, guys, I know this is going to be hard. I I'm sort of feel like I have to say this, but I'm not really sure I should, but I think I ought to. So, so I'm really sorry that this comes across as really hard. And, and please don't take it the wrong way. He doesn't apologize for it. He, just, he comes right out, listen, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, you are to abstain from the passions of your flesh. You are to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You have a gospel identity, and this means that you are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Therefore, this means you operate as those who submit to the God-created institutions in the sphere of relationships that you find yourselves in. And so when we look at these verses today, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, I think Peter's going to show us this. That believers display the gospel by living out their freedom in Christ as they submit to civil authorities. Believers will display the gospel. Believers, because we have a gospel identity, we are called to display the gospel, to display the good news message that Jesus Christ saved sinners in two ways. We do this. We proclaim the gospel by living out our freedom in Christ as we submit to civil authorities. We're going to see this split in half. We're going to see verses 13 through 15. We're going to touch on that idea of submission to civil authorities and what that looks like. And then we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. We're going to see Peter challenge us to live out of our freedom in Christ as we seek to honor those people who are in those places of civil authority. So look first in your copy of Scripture, verses 13 through 15. Peter says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Doesn't matter, it doesn't matter whether it's the, the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him, the emperor, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We are to submit, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So straight away, Peter comes to us and he says this. He gives us one verb that casts its shadow over these verses, verses 13 through 17. Everything that he's about to unpack comes to us from this one command. Because you and I have a gospel identity, we are to be subject. We are to submit ourselves to every human institution. And this singular idea runs throughout these verses, and it's a call for believers to submit themselves, not begrudgingly, but to submit themselves willingly to the civil authorities that are set up by God and rule over us in the sphere of relationship. The motive for this willing obedience isn't submission for submission's sake. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, be subject because it's just sort of what we're supposed to do because we're just supposed to be subject to people and might as well be subject to somebody, so mm, maybe just the people who are in, in governing authority. He, he doesn't say that. It's, this isn't submission just merely for submission's sake. This isn't just pull yourself up by your bootstrap, sort of grin and bear it. It's like, yeah, I'm going to submit to this guy, but man, I just really don't want to. It's No. We are to submit to every human institution, what? For the Lord's sake. This is the motive for willing obedience. Jesus is our Lord, and his life was marked by submission to authority. Therefore, we make much of Jesus. We image Jesus. We show a world Jesus when we do the same thing as Jesus did. When we submit our life to the various authorities that are over us, just like Jesus submitted his life to the authorities that ruled and reigned over him. And so, who are we to do this to, right? So, we are to be subject to every human institution. The motive is for the Lord's sake. And then the extent that this is to go to is not left to be questioned. Peter helps us when he comes and says this. This is how I see this working out. You are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, to every thing that God has created, every realm of relationship that God has created and set into place, specifically though, Peter says, I'm referencing the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by the emperor. 
What's interesting is that phrase there, human institution, the idea behind human institution is actually the idea of creation or creature. So if you were to read it here, you could read something like this. Be subject to every creature. Be subject to every creation. Be subject to everything that God has created and set into place. And he's specifically talking about this idea of civil authority. See, when we think about creation, we often think about sun, moon, stars, sky, grass, air, these sorts of things. But what Peter's helping us understand is this. Paul does the same thing in Romans 13 and in Titus chapter 1, that even governing authorities, these spheres of civil authority, things like the office of the president and things like our government and things like senators and judges and representatives and mayors and on and on and on, all of these things are actually creations of God. God is the one who's ordained that these things exist so that they would be in some way carrying out the will of God. We are to be subject to these things, these creatures, these creations. God is creator God. And everything that flows from him is his creation. And this includes everything from the rising sun to the creation of governing institutions. They all flow from God and he rules sovereignly over them all. It doesn't matter if it's the emperor as supreme. It doesn't matter if it's governors sent by him to punish those who do evil. And to praise those who do good, God expects Christians to be subject to these human authorities. Now, the question that you hear me ask all the time, and I try to to lead you in, whenever you see a command in Scripture, which we're given one, be subject to every human institution, the question we have to ask is, why? Like, why? Are we just doing this for, like, no no good reason? I mean, just because it's Tuesday and Peter's like, man, might as well be subject to something. Eh, governing institutions. And he says, no. He couches... The reason for submission to every human institution and the very will of God himself. Why are we to be subject to every human institution? Peter's reason is clear. This is the will of God. Whenever you see that phrase, this is the will of God, we should all perk up a little bit. It shows up in Scripture a handful of times, and we often go around like, this is, the, like th- this is the question that epitomizes most of our lives in our undergrad, right? What's the will of God? What am I supposed to be doing? Where am I supposed to be going? Who am I supposed to marry? What am I supposed to get my degree in? Where is my job? Where am I going? What is God's will? What is God's will? What is God's will? So when the Scriptures come to us and go, wonder no more, this is the will of God for you, we should perk up, we should scoot forward in our seat a little bit and go, okay, I need to listen very clearly because there is no mistaking God's will for me me is this. What is God's will for me according to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 15? It is this. God's will is that you and I, people who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, be subject to every human institution. Christians are to submit because the command to submit is the will of God with the result that you will silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Doing good toward governing authorities debunks the claim that Christians are evildoers and they extinguish the criticisms of those who are ignorant and revile them. See, if you'll remember a couple of verses earlier, back in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter said this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers... See, the context for these Asia Minor believers is this. They were living their life with good conduct. They were living their lives honoring God, doing good deeds, things that were beautiful, things that were good, things that were true. But the unbelieving world was looking at them, and they were still accusing them of being evildoers. They were still giving forth what Peter says here is this. They were arguing ignorant talk, arguing ignorant things, wrongly accusing Christians, and he says they are doing this out of their foolishness. And the way that you prove them to be wrong in their accusations of accusing you as evil is by doing good. Doing good being the will of God. The will of God being be subject to every human institution. See, believers display the gospel as they submit to civil authorities. But not only do believers display the gospel as they submit to civil authorities, believers display the gospel by living out their freedom in Christ. So when we turn the corner and we look at verses 16 and 17 here, what we're going to see is that he's going to try to teach us a little bit further. It's like, what exactly does it mean to submit? Do I submit only when I agree? 
Is there still possible a way for me to submit to civil authority when I disagree? Does this mean that, that these civil authorities just got, they just have carte blanche rule and reign over me, so no matter what they say I must do, even when they're calling me to, to go against the very clear commands of God? Is that, is that what he means? Am I supposed to use my gospel identity to just do whatever I want to? Do I, do I get to make decisions to, to go against the government whenever I want to, to go against civil authorities whenever I want to? These are the kind of questions that, that must have been rolling around in, in the minds of these people because you have to understand the context of what's going on here. Peter isn't writing this letter in a time of, of great and extreme casualness in the Christian world. He's writing this during the time of the rule of Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero is going to, to unleash a fury of persecution here in a couple of years that's actually going to take Peter's life. And Peter, in the midst of this, is saying, we are to still be subject because we have a gospel identity in this way. But then he comes and he gives us this warning, verses 16 and 17, that we have to be sure that we live out our freedom in Christ as servants of God, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. I love this. What's implied by Peter here with that one, that one verb all the way back in verse 13, be subject, that idea of be subject, it casts its shadow over everything. So you could read verse 16 like this. Submit as people who are free. Submit not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but submit as servants of God. Submit by honoring everyone. Submit by loving the brotherhood. Submit by fearing God. Submit by honoring the empire honoring the emperor. See, believers ultimately display the gospel when they submit to civil authorities with the right attitude of freedom. What Peter's doing is coming to us and saying, okay, now that you understand what you're supposed to be doing, the, the motive of why you're supposed to be doing it, the extent of who this command is supposed to touch, those who are emperor supreme or as governors, let me help you understand the kind of right heart attitude that we are to adopt as we go about living out this command, be subject to every human institution. Peter called these believers to submit in three ways. First, they were to submit as people who are free. See, the precious blood of Christ has set you and I free from guilt. It has set us free from condemnation. It has set us free from the bondage of Satan, the bondage of sin, the bondage of eternal spiritual death. You and I are free, truly free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Spirit of God has come and it has ransomed us. It has changed us. We have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We are no longer to be marked as slaves of sin, but we've got a new master. We've got a new owner. We have God as our owner, God as our master. See, when God caused us to be born again, our master changed. We once were slaves to sin and didn't care for righteousness at all. But when the gospel was applied to our heart, we were set free from sin, and we have now become slaves of God. You and I are truly free. And Peter is just saying in one little simple phrase, you are to submit as people who are free. He's basically encapsulated like the first third of his, of his whole letter in one, little, in one little phrase there. You and I are free because the gospel has saved us. But second, in your freedom, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. See, what he recognizes is this. We are citizens of a new kingdom. Peter, Peter recognizes this. We once were citizens of the domain of darkness, but through Jesus Christ, the salvation we have in him, Paul's language is this, that we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and we've been transplanted into the kingdom of the beloved son. Is the whole argument that we made from the book of Philippians. Remember this? The gospel identity makes us new citizens. We're no longer citizens of the kingdom of our enemy, Satan, but we are now citizens who dwell in the kingdom of King Jesus. We have a new king. We have a new master. We are also, Peter says, sojourners and exiles. We are sojourners and exiles. It's this identity that we have in the gospel saying we recognize now we're not just living for the horizontals of the world. We, we are not just li- merely living with this world and everything that we see as our end. We have a better end. We have a higher end. We have a new direction, a new place that we are going to. And that is the heavenly city in heaven with God ruling and reigning beside King Jesus and, and getting to enjoy everything that he is. 
And Peter's warning here is this. Just because you are now free in Christ and being free in Christ means that you have a heavenly citizenship, that you are a sojourner, that you are an exile, that does not mean in your newfound freedom that you have a license just to go hog wild with sin. You don't look around and go, well, man, I've I've been saved from this world so I can do whatever I want to in this world because I've got a new heavenly citizenship. He's saying that's that's a wrong way of thinking. You're taking a right truth, your freedom, but you're misapplying it somehow thinking that you could just go off and sin. We are not to do what Paul argues against in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Remember what he says there in Romans chapter 6? He just made this big old argument. He says, listen, where there's a lot of sin, grace abounded all the more. And then he, then he puts forth this false argument to try to debunk what some people are saying. Some people are coming along going, listen, if I sinned a lot and I got a lot of grace to match it, then what I just need to do is become a hellion and sin like crazy so I can max up sin and get a whole lot of grace. And Paul goes, no. No, no, he's like, that's, that's a misapplication of the truth. We, we, because we've been saved, we just don't keep on sinning to get more grace because we've received a mountain of grace, we are to put to death sin. And Peter's saying something, he's grabbing that same principle, and he's, he's saying something very similar. Listen, in your freedom, you have been ransomed, redeemed, restored, forgiven, but don't use these truths as a cover-up for evil. Don't let that somehow snooker you into thinking that you can just run off and go do whatever you want to do. Genuine freedom liberates believers to do what is good, not to do what is evil. And Peter cautions those who are free in Christ to not use their spiritual freedom as a covering for the evil of not submitting to civil authorities. Because apparently that was the temptation for some of these people to go, what, Nero? Man, I'm not part of Nero's kingdom anymore. I'm part of King Jesus' kingdom. And so what this means is I can think and act and say and speak however I want to against Nero's kingdom. And I am free to do so because I am free in Christ. And Peter goes, no. No, we're not to go that direction. We're not to think. We're not to think that way. Well, the way we're supposed to think is because we are truly free people in Christ, we are to submit ourselves as servants of God. See, our freedom is found when we live as servants. The truly free person in Christ is free to serve God by doing his will and obeying those whom he has put into places of authority. True liberty, according to the New Testament, means that there is freedom to go forth and do what is right, not freedom to go and sin like crazy. And this leads Peter to go off and to give just four final exhortations. What he does is as you, as a result of thinking through this, you're to honor everyone. Christians should be courteous and respectful to all people since all people are created in the image of God. We are to love the brotherhood. We are to honor and respect those who are Christians, fellow brothers, fellow sisters in Christ, but amongst the brotherhood, amongst the believers, amongst the men and women who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who are to be found among God's people there to especially show courtesy and respect, but even more so love. Love toward one another. Then he goes and he gives two more commands. He says we are to fear God and we are to honor the emperor. And the idea of fearing God, he contrasts to honoring the emperor. Believers are to honor the king and show him respect because of his office, but they are not to fear him. Only God is to receive the ultimate category, the ultimate thought, this ultimate idea of fearing the Lord, fearing God. Fear for a person is reserved ultimately for God alone. But to fear God, to rightly recognize this, is the highest obligation of the Christian, yet these believers were to still honor the emperor. Just because they were to fear God and not fear Caesar doesn't mean that they were able and had a license to go and dishonor Caesar. They were to rightly recognize his God-given authority. So in a nutshell, when you come to verses 13 through 17, it really works itself like this. You start really at the bottom of what Peter says, and you work toward the top. And it's about as simply as you can say it, it will go something like this. You are truly free in Christ, and because you are free in Christ, you're to live as a servant of God. A servant of God desires to do the will of his master. The will of his master, your master is what? That you submit to civil authorities. 
so that when you submit to civil authorities, you, by doing good, should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And actually, the gospel goes forward because then people have no grounds to accuse you and have their accusations be real, but people will see your good deeds and actually realize these are just false accusations. So when you are seeking to do the will of God, being subject to every human institution, the way you operate like this is you honor, love, fear, and honor. See, God's will for your life is submission to civil authorities. And this is just one of many ways that we can proclaim the excellencies of our God who saved us. I mean, I, I, just, don't, I just don't know if you guys just appreciate like the, the, the magnitude of just like how keen of what Peter is saying here. I mean, as I was studying all week long, th- this is just admittedly complex, right? I mean, I hope you feel this. Like, the world in which we live and the world of just civil authority and just government and, and the people we vote and elect and all these sorts of things, like, like I mean... Peter's coming to us, and he's taking his heels, and what he's doing is he's just stomping on our toes because he's coming to us and saying, listen, even the way you think about those whom are in authority over you at every human institution, that is not an area where you just get to be devoid of the gospel. The gospel is to invade the way you think about the office and the way you think about the people who serve in that office. God's will for your life, God's will for my life is submission to civil authorities. And this is just one of the many ways that we can proclaim the excellencies of our God who saved us. Now, I want to give this disclaimer here before I go and I, I seek to apply what we've just, we've just heard. See, Peter gave a command that represents a general truth. Right? He specified what Christians should do in most situations when confronting civil authorities. Believers should be inclined to obey and submit to the rulers of their day. Yet we must recognize that the rule of civil authorities is not absolute. Right? That's the whole idea that's wrapped up in the idea of fearing God. So what we don't say is the President of the United States has carte blanche authority to rule and reign over me. There is somebody that's got an even higher authority to him, and that is God himself. We say that about senators, we say that about representatives, we say that about judges, we say that about governors, we say that about mayors, and everybody in between. We recognize that the rule of civil authorities as believers is not absolute. Their authority to rule is rooted in the very authority of the sovereign God himself. Their authority does not trump God's lordship, and they should be disobeyed if they command Christians to go against God's will. There's just examples of this from Scripture. Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew housewives, Pharaoh said, we are having a lot of Hebrews being born. And as Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, I don't really like this. So he went and grabbed some of the Hebrew midwives and said, as you are helping these Hebrew women deliver babies, what you need to do is, if a girl comes out, let her live. If a boy comes out, you're to take that boy and to kill him. The Hebrew midwives said, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. It's an example of fearing God. God has the higher authority. Taking of innocent life is not kosher. I have heard the command of the king, but I recognize that king is stepping outside of the bounds of the good authority and the good command of God. And so, therefore, it is right for us to obey God and not obey Pharaoh in this, in this instance. You see Peter himself doing this in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 4, where the religious rulers, those civil authorities, have Peter's day came and said, we know you are really fired up about Jesus, but we are commanding you, stop it. Don't preach the gospel. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't talk about eternal life. Don't, don't say things about Jesus anymore. And you get those famous phrases, well, you, it's up for you to decide whether or not we should obey you, but I'm going to tell you this, we're going to obey God, we're going to preach the gospel. I, Acts 5, 29, but Peter and the apostles answered to the authorities when they came back and said, listen, man, we told you to stop, but you didn't stop, but we're about to throw you in prison. And Peter comes off with this, we must obey God rather than men, because the command of these civil authorities was directly opposed to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. These apostles were commanded mission as believers in Jesus Christ to take the good news message that Jesus Christ saved sinners to the four corners of the globe. And when these people came and said, don't do it, they recognized that they were stepping outside the realm, outside the umbrella of God's good authority. And so Peter made the right decision, drew the right conclusion that it is good and right for us not to obey them, to obey God. We have to have a category for this disclaimer. But the danger is that we can abuse this disclaimer to justify disobedience to God's command of submission. 
See, the good news of the gospel is that it comes to us and it corrects us constantly and in all the right ways. See, our hope rests on Christ alone, but the truth is that we are prone to wander from this hope. The gospel comes to us and constantly realigns our hope by directing us back to Jesus Christ. This is especially true in our relationships that God has called us to submit in. And this can be tricky, right? Because we recognize that we live in a world where God has placed civil authorities over us, and they are authorities that we just don't always agree with, right? Like, if anything, you feel the friction, you feel the tension, you feel the rub is in this, because this is what was wrestling and rolling around in my mind all week. What? Like, that guy? That woman? That office? I'm just, like, I just don't just disagree with the things they're saying and doing. And so, so what does it look like for me as a servant of God to live out my freedom in a right way, doing the will of my master, God himself, and submitting to the very creation that he put into place, the office that he put into place, and the person that he created in the image of God to fill that office? How, how do I do this, right? I mean, there are civil authorities over you, there are civil authorities over me that we do not always agree with. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And this is from the President of the United States to senators, representatives, to judges, governors, mayors, and everyone in between. How are we to live out this command? I think it looks like this. The way we relate to these offices is still to be run through the grid of the gospel. So what we don't do is come to a person who's holding some office of civil authority and go, I just outright disagree with you. Therefore, the conclusion I draw is I am just free to go off and say whatever I want to say, say it however I want to say it, speak openly and freely however I want to do it. See, believers display the gospel by living out their freedom in Christ as they submit to civil authorities. And one way believers can submit to civil authorities, I think, is this, is by showing them honor for the office they hold and showing them honor for the person they are created in the image of God. If you want to connect the dots of verses 13 through 17, I think you take the first two words and you connect it to the last three words. The way that we can do the will of God is be subject to a civil authority by honoring this person. I think this is just, there's many ways, and we just didn't have enough time to go, to go through them, but what is one way, one, one easy way that we can carry this out? I think it is this. As we go forward as believers with a gospel identity is understanding this. We can do the will of God by submitting to civil authorities even when we agree with them or if we disagree with them by still doing what Peter called us to do, which is to honor this person. See, our version of the, the emperor as supreme, for, for their day, and, and, and Peter's day, when he said the emperor is supreme, it's really the king is supreme. And what he's doing is talking about Caesar. So what he's saying is, in this whole sphere of civil authority, we recognize that in Rome, there's one person who sits at the middle of it all. And everything just sort of rolls and revolves around him. And he says, whether it's him or all the people that are to carry out their offices in support of what this person is doing, we are to honor this person. In our version of this, what we could say is the President of the United States. He is one who sits at the middle of our political world. And yes, there's, like I said, there's senators and representatives and judges and mayors and governors and all these people that circle around him. But there's one person where we'd say generally the, the, the public figure of the civil authority world that we live in and we relate to, it can be, it can be seen to be him. So now we rightly recognize that the President is not our highest nor final source of authority. Right, His office roots and finds his authority ultimately in God. If you want a really good unpacking of that, go read Romans chapter 13. The same with governor, senator, representative, etc. Their authority finds and roots and rests itself in God's ultimate authority. We rightly recognize that the president is not our highest nor final source of authority. God is, and this is what Peter had in mind when he said we are to ultimately fear God. But what this does not mean is that we get to dishonor the office of president or dishonor the man who fills that office. See, I've heard this phrase enough times to become very, 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 very upset with it. People will come to me and say this. Well, I understand that this person is the President of the United States, but I refuse to honor the office, and I refuse to honor that man. And my challenge for you is, brother, the gospel doesn't give you the privilege to speak that way. 
Or they might take it up a step, a notch better, where they will at least have heard this phrase, or you'll say something along these lines. Well, I will honor the office of president of the United States, but I refuse to honor the man. It's like, man, I don't think the gospel gives you the privilege of being able to speak that way. That doesn't mean you agree with every word that comes out of his mouth, but there is something where you say, that man, this person, this woman, this civil authority has been stamped and created with the image of God. And their person and the way they work out their life in the sphere of another created thing that God has created called government, which is to rule over the peoples of this world that God has created, we don't, as gospel believers, have the right to come and say, I just outright, decidedly dishonor the office and dishonor the person who who's holding that office. The gospel doesn't give us the privilege of thinking this way. The gospel compels us. It it frees us to be able to grant courtesy and respect to the office and person even when we disagree with the person. See, we're to recognize that the office being held is created by God and the person holding that office is created in the image of God. There's therefore a respect due the office of president and due the man who fills the office. There's a, there's a level of respect due to the governor, a level of respect due to the judge, to, to the alderman, to the mayor, down the line you go. See, the disconnect is often seen when a believer who disagrees with the civil authority thinks that this is a license to sin. And my fear is that many Christians have ruined their witness because they have used their freedom as a cover-up for evil. Right? This is, this is what I think Paul, this is what I think Peter's saying here in these verses of using your freedom. Don't, don't use your freedom as a, as a cover up for, for evil. Because remember, this idea of verses 13 through 17 of the way the gospel impacts us in this relational sphere called government, civil authority, we are to recognize that it stems out of a greater idea that we argued for back in verses 11 and 12, which is this. Gospel mission is battle and gospel mission is witness. There is a way for you to debunk your gospel witness. And I think this is a further teasing out of this that idea specifically as it relates to human institutions, to civil authorities. And my fear is that many Christians have ruined their witness because they have used their freedom as a cover-up for evil, thinking they can say whatever they want, however they want, never giving a thought to the Scriptures just simply because they disagree. They've got some sort of political bee in their bonnet. And so what they do is they just go to Facebook. The moment they hear something, what do they do? And they just start spewing stuff out there. Without giving like a moment's thought, like to, without just giving a pause for thought, going, okay, I'm about to say something that a whole lot of people are going to say, believers and unbelievers alike. How does what I'm about to say mesh up with Scripture? Is what I'm about to say true because it directly opposes Scripture? Or is it just because I don't like the guy, I don't like the office, so I'm just going to say something? i got to be in my bond. Ah, i got to get this thing out. Send. And then it's just out there. And then you just do it over and over and over and over and over again. And then you become known as a person who is marked with enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. These are all things last week we said from Galatians chapter 5. These are the over-desires of the flesh, the very thing that, that Peter said we are to abstain from. And then you come to this person, but you, you, you see how they wear the jersey of Christian They're on Team Jesus, but their speech is constantly marked with divisions and dissensions and rivalry and jealousy and strife. And you try to come to them and say, man, brother, I understand that you don't agree with the person. But look at the way you're doing it. You're stirring up division. You're stirring up strife. And you don't even really have a good reason for it. And you try to help guide this person back into line with with not using their freedom as a cover-up for evil, but they come to you and somehow try to explain to you because they are believers, they somehow have a hold on all things true, and that gives them, grants them the liberty to be able to destroy and cut people down. So if you try to call them out on it, they try to cover up their evil, saying they're free to speak this way because they're exposing the evils of, of this person. But see, we're to be a people of proclamation. We are called to be a people of proclamation. You are going to proclaim something. And we're not to see ourselves as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that we may proclaim all the stupid things various people holding civil offices are doing. Like we're, we're, that's not our, our call of proclamation. See, when you do it this way, 
you are known only for your proclamation against civil authorities. And then what you do is you start striking at the very, the very foundation of the platform you're trying to step on called the gospel. See, rather what we're to do is we're to see ourselves as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and people for his own possession so that we may proclaim the excellencies of our God who saved us. Yes, we may, as disciples of Jesus Christ, speak up when civil authorities are seeking policies that contradict the ways of God. Please do not hear me say something otherwise. We, as gospel believers, have the ability and the right to help a world living in darkness to understand when they start stepping outside the umbrella of God's good commands to speak up, to say certain things. My, my worry, my fear is that what we often do is not run what we're going to say through a grid of Scripture, and then we just end up saying foolish things and saying foolish things and saying foolish things. And so then what the unbelieving world sees is they step back and go, I know all I know is two things. This guy calls himself a Christian then he's only and ever known for dissension, strife, enmity, divisions, and all these sorts of things. So then when that opportunity finally does come for you to step up into that place and go, brother, I want to share the good news message that Jesus Christ saved sinners, all this unbeliever knows is this. I have seen you over and over again strike at, lash out against someone that I like or some, some ideology that I hold dear, and you didn't really have a good explanation for it. All you did was just kept saying it and saying it. You didn't have all the facts. You didn't think it through. You didn't give any explanation. And all I know is that you're just sort of divisive and I just don't really want to hear anything you have to say. And you've lost your ability to be a witness in that person's life because you went about trying to do something right but misapplied it in a very foolish way over and over and over and over and over again. We, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are called to speak up when civil authorities are seeking policies that contradict the ways of God. But let us not be known for railing against our civil authorities for the sake of just railing against them. This combative mentality has ruined many a Christian witness. See, my argument is this, that there is a way for us to obey God's will by submitting to civil authorities and honoring them when we agree and even when we disagree with them. There's a decent chance that in the days ahead, in the years ahead, in the decades ahead, that we will find ourselves disagreeing with our civil authorities more and more. And the question is, so how are we going to live, live out the good, the good news message of Jesus Christ, the will of God, as we find ourselves in that place? I think one of the surefire ways to ruin our witness as gospel proclaimers is to take up the banner of us being a people who are only known for railing against these civil authorities, their office, and the people against it. That's a surefire way to kill the progress of the gospel. Now, I know God is good, and God can rule and reign over that, and the Holy Spirit does his work apart from us. I understand that. But one of the surefire ways for us, you and me, to make people just immediately shut off the moment we try to say anything remotely interesting about the gospel is if we've laid a groundwork of years and weeks and months of just cutting and cutting and just vitriol and and enmity and strife and division and dissension, is that kills our ability and our platform of witness. So this is all the more reason why we're to live in the way prescribed by Peter, doing good, fearing God, honoring our civil authorities, keeping our conduct honorable, so that those outside Christ may see our good deeds and glorify God, so that believers see these good deeds will be put to silence to the ignorant talk of foolish people who are wrongly accused Christians as those who do evil. My prayer is this, for myself and for us, as we, as we seek to, to live in this tension, of what it looks like to honor people we agree or disagree with while simultaneously honoring God by submitting to them. Is that our actions, whatever we think, whatever we say, whatever we do, our actions in the name of Christian freedom would never lead people away from the gospel, but that our actions would be instruments that accent our proclamation that Jesus Christ saves sinners. That's my ultimate prayer for us. And I admit, that's sort, of, that's sort of gray, right? Like, I just didn't give you guys, in this specific in, in, instance, what you're supposed to do is say this. And in this specific instance, you don't say this. 
In this specific thing, when this person who in civil authority says this, we're supposed to react this way, and we're supposed to go and forth and do this thing. I, I didn't do that. But what I tried to do is give us this, this idea, this, this framework, this matrix, this, this trellis of what do the scriptures say, and this is the balance, and this is the tension, and I just don't have a, a perfect formula for you. The tension is this. Holy Spirit, please, for the mercy of God and for the glorious gospel to spread forward, help me when I agree or disagree with a civil authority to still honor them because they're created in the image of God and the office they hold was created by God himself. Do your will by submitting to them so that I may honor them and simultaneously show that I ultimately fear God. That's a heavy tension to live in, but it's not impossible for the Holy Spirit to do. Let's pray. God, you're good, and we thank you for your good news message. Thank you for Peter who tries to lead us in this way of what it looks like to apply the gospel in a very practical way. It doesn't matter if it's the husband-wife relationship. It doesn't matter if it's the employee-employer relationship. It doesn't matter if it's the citizen-civil authority relationship. For Peter, there is no realm, no sphere of relationship that God had instituted that was off limits from how the gospel comes and speaks to us and leads us and guides us in those moments. God, I, my confession out loud in front of these people was, this, this, is, just, this is hard. I, I don't have all the answers for this. The issue is complex. I mean, there's so many questions I am positive that are just circling around in this room that just, we just didn't have time to answer and think through. So, God, I pray in the days ahead, in the, the weeks and the months ahead, that you would guide your people, that you would lead us and, and guide us to be a people who, who make much of King Jesus as we seek to live out by the power of the Holy Spirit this tension that Peter has just with great joy, just come and drop right into our laps. May we be a people marked by the proclamation of the gospel. May we be known more for that than known more for who we are just against. The gospel is the good news. We want people to know Jesus. May we never sacrifice our allegiance for the gospel for some for some cause or anything else, anything else other than the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is less. May we be citizens fully devoted to seeing the good news message of Jesus advance, and that is then in turn our motive, so then as we turn to these other spheres, these other realms of relationship, that you would empower us to go do these things. God, we love you. We ask you to do this. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.